as we turn our attention now to the Word of God and we conclude the series on the I Am's of Jesus. So follow along with me, if you would, in your copy of the Word. Open your Bibles to John chapter 15. We'll be reading verses 1 through 17. Hear now the Word of God. I am the true vine, and my Father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch, and is withered. And men gather them, and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit. So shall ye be my disciples. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. This is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. But I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard of my Father I have made known unto you. Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, and ordained you, that ye should go forth and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain. That whatsoever ye shall ask in the fa- of the Father in my name, he may give it you. These things I command you, that ye love one another. Our gracious Father, our merciful Father in heaven, as we come now to your word, we ask. We ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to illumine the preaching and the hearing of your word this morning. Help us to understand this teaching of our Lord such that we are drawn closer to Him and that our union and communion in Jesus is more precious to our understanding and more effective in our living as you use your holy word to conform us unto the image of Christ. For it is in His glorious name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As we come to this passage, we come to a teaching from the Lord Jesus 
that is of utmost importance in the life of the Christian. It is that which Martin Lloyd-Jones said is one of the greatest and most marvelous of all the Christian doctrines, one of the most glorious beyond any question at all. It is the whole teaching of Scripture. In his classic work, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, John Murray says of this that it is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. It is not simply a phase of the application of redemption. It underlies every aspect of redemption. So as we come to this final I am statement of Jesus, I am the true vine, we come to a truth and a reality that is at the very core of our faith. And that truth, that reality is our union with Christ. Union with the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the only begotten Son of the Lord. Begotten of the Father before all worlds. God of God, light of light, very God of very God. He is the great I Am incarnate. As we look to the narrative, Jesus is still in the upper room with His disciples. He is preparing them for the ministry they have been called to. He has prepared them and made them clean through His Word. Verse 3, Now ye are clean through the Word which I have spoken unto you. And it is now time to deliver to them this important understanding of their relationship to Him. The great Teacher, the pioneer of our faith, the One who says to those who are hungry and thirsty, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. And he says to those that are blind, I am the light of the world. He says to those who are lost in the world, outside of the love of the Father, I am the door. To those who need guidance and protection, he says, I am the good shepherd. To those who are spiritually dead, He reveals that I am the life and the resurrection. And to those who would approach God, He declares, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And now, to those who want to know who we are as believers, to His disciples who want to know how it is we are to live this Christian life, to those who struggle with doubt or are wondering about the trials of life, and those who might ask, of what benefit is the Christian life? Or more concisely, to those who want to know what is our position, our purpose, and our privilege in Christ, He answers, I am the true vine, and you are the branches. So let us then use this as our outline as we explore this great passage from John 15 and look at our position, our purpose, and our privilege in this union with Christ. And let us do so first by considering the nature of that union. Then we will look at the evidence of that union and conclude with the benefits of the union. First, the nature of our union with Christ. What is that nature 
What is the nature of this union with Christ? What are we to understand about our relationship to Christ as we hear these words of Jesus saying, I am the true vine? Looking at verses 1 and 2, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth, that it might bring forth more fruit. Here, we are introduced to the characters in a metaphor that Jesus uses. Jesus is the true vine. And God the Father is the husbandman, the vine dresser, the gardener and owner of it, if you will. And His disciples, and, and by extension we, are the branches. Note that Jesus here declares Himself to be the true vine, not just the vine. In order to more fully grasp why that is, we need to remember our Old Testament Scriptures. If you recall, Israel is often described as a vineyard in the Scriptures, and every time that imagery is used, it is connected with judgment and the failure of Israel to bring forth the fruit she was called to produce. Consider with me these first seven verses from Isaiah chapter 5. Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard? What more could have been done that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now, please let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it shall be burned and break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste. It will also, I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are His pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. Jesus declares Himself to be the true vine against this historical backdrop, expecting His disciples to understand and to connect the dots. He expects them to know that where Israel failed to produce good fruit and thereby manifest themselves, they thereby manifest themselves to be false vines. Jesus is the true vine and the one that will necessarily produce the good fruit intended all along. As we saw in our Old Testament reading earlier from Ezekiel 15, a vine that does not produce fruit has no other suitable use. We don't harvest wood from the vine to build houses or to build furniture. And according to Ezekiel 15, you wouldn't even grow vines with the intent to make pegs out of its wood and to hang things on. 
No, the only thing left to do with an unfruitful vine is to dig it up and burn it. And this is a picture of God's judgment. As we further consider the nature of our union with Christ, we see from this metaphor that we, as branches, are dependent upon and inseparably and organically connected to the vine. Apart from the vine, there is no life-sustaining water. And apart from the vine, there is no nourishment. There is no sap. The branches have no independent existence. No independent life apart from their connection to the vine. In short, a branch separated from or not connected to the true vine is dead. So what does this mean for the believer and his relationship to Christ? What are we to understand about the nature of the union between the believer and Christ as we consider the vine and the branches? First of all, we see there is a connection between the believer and Christ. And in this connection, there is firstly an ind- a dependence of the believer upon Christ. We see this as we understand that the branch draws its nourishment, its sap from the vine. Secondly, we see a subservient relationship of the believer to Christ. It is obvious from this illustration and our understanding of basic horticulture that the branch cannot live apart from the vine. But the vine is not dependent upon the branch. Therefore, the branch is subservient to the vine as we are subservient to Christ. And we also see that there is a vital communion of the believer in Christ. There is a living connection between the branch and the vine. They merge into one another. And where they meet, where they come together, it can be difficult to understand where one ends and the other begins. Certainly there is a distinction, but perhaps we can begin to see a picture there of the mystical communion of Christ and the believer, of Christ and the church, His bride. This dependent union and communion is captured in the text before us in the word abide. Beginning at verse 4 and following through to verse 17, we find the terms abide, abideth, continue, and remain, all stemming from the same root word in the Greek. Eleven times. Eleven times do we see the word abide. This word describes who we are and what we are to do as believers. And it describes our relationship in Christ, in Christ in us. Note that it is a mutual abiding Verse 4, abide in me and I in you. In fact, the most common description of a follower of Christ in the Scripture is in Christ. The phrase in Christ, in the Lord, or in Him is used 164 times in the letters of Paul alone. Thus, we can easily see that the Spirit-inspired apostle understood well the centrality and the importance of our union with Christ in His revelation of the doctrine of the believer. Did you know that apart from Christ, we are utterly incapable 
of doing anything, of producing anything that is of true worth, of being useful in the kingdom of God, of doing any good. Is this not abundantly clear in verse 5? I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, ye can do nothing. In order to produce fruit, the branch must abide in the vine, and apart from that vine, it can do nothing. Nothing. But this is a lesson that we often struggle against, isn't it? Our faith is too small. Our confidence in the Word of God is minimal. We show this because our first impulse is to strike out in our own effort. Not stopping first to seek the Lord in prayer. Not pausing to consider the guidance available to us in divine revelation. Even in the church, we lean so heavily on the wisdom of the world, we quickly embrace that which is developed, manufactured, marketed, and delivered to the world using the world's wisdom, using the latest and greatest imaginings of man, without once ever considering what God has spoken concerning a matter. Perhaps you've been in this situation. It's morning. You're ready for your quiet time. You settle down for a time of Scripture reading one morning, and you read the words of Proverbs 21. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of water. He turneth it whithersoever he will. And everyone says, Amen. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord pondereth the hearts. Yes, that's right. To do justice and judgment is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Indeed, so true. And high look and a proud heart, yes. And the plowing of the wicked is sin. And we make it to that point. And somewhere within our mind, a voice says, now wait a minute. Surely there are good people who are not necessarily Christians who do good things. They feed hungry people. They participate in all sorts of humanitarian services, don't they? Yes, but even the plowing of the wicked is sin. Apart from Christ, the true vine, we can do nothing. All of the good deeds that Paul did before his coming to Christ, he accounted as worthless, as dung. The nature of our union with Christ is such that without Him, we can do nothing. But the nature of our union in Christ is also one of communion. To be in Christ does not mean to be inside Christ as tools are inside a box or our clothes are in a closet. But it means to be organically and intimately united to Christ as a limb is in the body or a branch in the tree. It is this personal, intimate relationship with Christ that is the distinctive mark of His authentic followers. In this communion of life between the branch and the vine, between the believer and Christ, the believer finds his fullest satisfaction. Is this not the very nature of how we are created? 
There is a longing in us that is satisfied only as we are connected in vital union to Christ. All around us, everywhere we look, are men and women who are unfulfilled and alienated, who are asking what it means to to be human. What is their purpose in this life? They are seeking the secret of satisfaction, of happiness, and are searching for their own identity. Where is it to be found? In Christ. There is an inner emptiness that can only be filled by Christ. How many of you are familiar with Malcolm Muggeridge? Malcolm Muggeridge. Go ahead, show of hands. Oh, wow. Like three. That's okay. I used to watch him um, and see him on uh, Firing Line with William F. Buckley. Anybody watch that show back in the day? Conservative show on PBS. Um, fascinating show, but he was, a, he was a wonderful guest. A very winsome man, an Englishman who was very engaging. And he was, um, he was known for his conservative push against the mainstream culture at that point. But if you've ever listened to Robbie Zacharias, so I guess not many of you have, on the radio, he quotes Malcolm Muggeridge all the time. Um, Muggeridge was an English journalist. He, he was noted for his satire and his essays and his witty commentary. And it was Muggeridge who came to Christ in the 60s who said, I may suppose I regard, I may, I suppose, regard myself as being a relatively successful man. People occasionally stare at me in the street. That's fame. I can fairly easily earn enough to qualify for admission to the highest slopes of inland revenue. That's success. Furnished with money and a little fame, even the elderly, if they care to, can partake of trendy diversions. That's pleasure. It might happen once in a while that something I said or wrote was sufficiently heated to persuade myself that it represented a serious impact on our time. That's fulfillment. Yet I say to you, and I beg of you to believe me, multiply these tiny triumphs by a million, add them all together, and they are nothing, less than nothing, a positive impediment measured against one draft of that living water that Christ offers to the spiritually thirsty. And to that, I say amen. The nature of our communion with Christ goes far beyond a feeling of our deepest satisfaction in this earthly life. There is also a mystical union and communion whereby we participate in the divine life. In 2 Peter chapter 1, we read, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as His divine power has given to us all, all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue, by which we have been given, have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Sometimes the profundity of a scriptural truth is such that it almost takes your breath away. How can we even begin to comprehend words such as these? 
How can we wrap our mind around that which is covered in mystery, which is beyond our present experience in our natural minds? I would suggest that as we grapple with this truth, we need to understand that the life we have in Christ is exceedingly abnormal. Yes, abnormal. Not natural, but rather supernatural. It is born of the Spirit and born again from above. This is in distinction from that which is born of flesh, is flesh. It is a life that is pleasing to God. As Paul writes in Romans 6, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But this, if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. In this short passage, in you... Four times. To be in Christ, we have a life that is pleasing to God. But note that it is also life eternal. Christ instructs his disciples that because I live, you shall live also. This new nature that we enjoy by virtue of our union in Christ lives eternally, fully, abundantly, productively, and securely. Even now, even now we are united to Christ by the sap and fibers of spiritual life, which neither things present nor things to come can separate. It may be assailed, but it can never be destroyed. For who shall condemn to death that which is not under the law? Who can slay that which abides under the shadow of the Almighty? Even as sin reigns unto death, even so must grace reign unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. The incorruptible seed may be crushed, it may be bruised and buried, but the life within it will not be extinguished. It will yet arise. So even in our death, our life is hidden with Christ in God, and when Christ, who, who is our life, appears, then we also will, will appear with Him in glory. The nature of our union with Christ is one of dependence and one of union and communion, both in this earthly life and in the divine life. Not only does the text before us reveal the nature of our union in Christ, it also shows us the evidence of this union in Christ. The first and most obvious evidence we see in the text is the production of fruit. This fruit is not the result of human achievement, nor of our striving, but rather it is the outcome of our abiding in Christ. In these verses, we see fruit referenced eight times, and as we consider the production of fruit upon branches, branches that are connected and in vital union with the true vine, we know from biology that kind produces kind, and that therefore 
we naturally expect that only good fruit will result from this connection to Christ. But what kind of good fruit? There are many types of good fruit we can find in Scripture. Many types of Christ-like fruit. But we need look no further than this text in John 15 to begin to unfold some of these details regarding the fruit. First of all, as we read in verse 5, He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. If we are abiding in Christ, we are assured here that there will be a bounteous harvest of fruit. He further clarifies this in verse 8 as he says, Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit. As we produce fruit, good fruit that is fitting to be brought forth from Christ, we glorify the Father. For fruit speaks of its source, and a tree is known by its fruit. This is part of our confession, part of our testimony in our Christian life. Our fruit must testify to the beauty, the truth, and the goodness of Christ. The Lord also maintains this kind of kind-producing kind illustration as He warns of the false prophets in Matthew 7. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. We see clearly then that the evidence of our union with Christ is good fruit, much fruit, but how do we characterize that fruit? We could turn to Galatians 5 and see that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We could turn to Colossians 3 and see Paul calling the Christians there to put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, you also must do. But above all things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body. And be thankful. In the Word of God, we see these instructions, these imperatives of how we are to live our lives. And as we abide in Christ and yield to the work of the Holy Spirit, we are enabled more and more to follow them, to be obedient to them, and to bring forth fruit, which is the evidence of our union in Christ. As we consider much fruit as an evidence of our union in Christ, it is helpful to note the life and death of a believer whose very name means much fruit. Polycarp was a 2nd century bishop of Smyrna and was said to have been a student of the Apostle John. Irenaeus wrote the following words about Polycarp. I could tell you the place where the blessed Polycarp sat to preach the Word of God. It is yet present to my mind with what gravity 
He everywhere came in and went out. What was the sanctity of His deportment? The majesty of His countenance? And what were the holy exhortations to the people? I seem to hear Him now relate how He conversed with John and many others who had seen Jesus Christ. The words He had heard from their mouths. But it is the story of his martyrdom that is most often told of Polycarp. As he speaks of the Lord on the day of his death, he said, Eighty and six years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my King and Savior? You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season, and after a little while is quenched but you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. You see, Polycarp was burned at the stake and pierced with a spear for refusing to burn incense to the Roman emperor. His final prayer before his death was, I bless you, Father, for judging me worthy of this honor so that in the company of the martyrs I may share in the cup of Christ. Here was a saint who lived well, served well, and died well, and in so doing bore much fruit as an evidence of his union with Christ. But there's another evidence of our union in Christ that we may tend to overlook. And so turning back to verse 2, we read, Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Or perhaps it would be helpful to read it from the New King James. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Contrary to our natural intuition and even our desire, it is the pruning we need in order to be more productive. And this pruning is itself an evidence that we are in union with Christ. God, as the vine dresser, knows perfectly what is required for us to be more productive branches. If we don't experience the pruning hand of God, we may well ask ourselves if we are indeed in vital union with the true vine. As we consider pruning, the gardeners and arborists in our midst would really understand that to be too severe in the pruning could stunt the plant or even kill it. And yet, to be too timid with the pruning is to limit the production of fruit or fail to address that which is needed within the plant. Pruning involves the cutting, the snipping, or the pinching off of unwanted, unhelpful growth on a plant. The purpose of pruning could be to open up the plant to more light, more sunshine, more air, and improve the health of the plant. Or it could be to simply improve the overall appearance of the plant, or train uh, growth in a different direction. Pruning has many purposes, especially in the vineyard. But it is always intended to bring forth better or more abundant fruit. Likewise, the Lord prunes us. He snips away the wild and unproductive areas of our lives, He sometimes prunes what appears to be a beautiful ministry shoot that we believe 
is bound to produce good fruit because from his perspective, he can see that it is heading in the wrong direction or will hinder the production of other fruit, other fruit that he has in mind for us. He sees that failing to prune will limit the full potential of the fruit-bearing branch. He is the perfect husbandman. He is the perfect husbandman of our lives and knows exactly when and how and where we need to be pruned. Would that we would all recall this truth as we face the challenges, the trials and the disappointments in this life and yield to the necessary pruning from the hand of the master gardener and do so with thankfulness. This is something we can only do by faith. By faith, we are able to yield to His pruning, knowing that the Lord chastises those whom He loves. Having then considered the nature and evidence of our union in Christ, we now turn our attention to the final consideration, which is the benefits of our union in Christ. Can we readily see in our text that one of the benefits of our union in Christ is our escape from the wrath and condemnation of God? Looking back again to verse 2, we read, Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. We don't have to speculate who it is that doesn't bear fruit, for if we continue to read down to verse 6, we see that the one who doesn't bear fruit is the one who doesn't abide in Christ. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered, and men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. To be outside of Christ is to be apart from the true vine. Even though you may have the appearance of being in the vine, being apart from the vine means that you are bound for destruction. The man outside of Christ is dead in his trespasses and sin. If he is not brought into that vital, life-giving union with Christ, he is rejected by God. He withers and dies and is cast into the fire. And therein is the second and final death. There is no acceptance apart from being in union to Christ. To be in Christ is to be delivered from this second death. To be made alive. One of the benefits we enjoy in our union in Christ is the full knowledge that we have been saved and will never see the wrath and condemnation of God. For in Christ, His wrath has been appeased and the price of His condemnation has been paid in full. Another benefit of the union with Christ is the answered prayer. Look down to verse 7 and read, If ye abide in me and my words in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. United to Christ we pray, and our prayers are heard by the mediator which is Christ Himself. And He answers our prayers. To pray is the enjoyment. It is the activity of that union with Christ. It is the means of life-giving grace that flows from the vine 
to the branches as the branches communicate their needs to the vine. A prayerless life is a life devoid of union and communion with Christ. And to be a fruitful branch, we must be in continual prayerful communion with the vine. Yet another benefit of union with Christ is that we become objects, the objects of divine love. Look at verses 9 and 10. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in His love. We love Him, and He loves us. As a demonstration of our love for Him, we obey His commandments, and we do so. And as we do so, we are manifesting Christ's likeness because Christ kept the Father's commandments. Obedience. It is one of the fruits of our abiding. But there is yet more fruit to come because we read in verse 11, These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. Another benefit of this union is joy. A joy from Christ and a joy that is full. Christ has not purposed a dry, sullen, cheerless life for His people. No, our lives are to be characterized by joy, by rejoicing, satisfaction, and contentment in Him. At His right hand are pleasures forevermore. And yet another benefit of this union is love. In verses 12 through 17, we see that Christ commands us to love one another because our union manifests the fruit of obedience to His commandments. Our union in Christ brings us love for one another. A love that is a response to Christ's love for us and that has been demonstrated for us by Christ. A love that is sacrificial and would even lead one to lay down his life for his friends. A love that brings us into such abiding fellowship with Christ that He now calls us friends and reveals the Father's Word to us. And this is a love that the Father placed upon us before the foundation of the world in Christ. We do well to ponder these words from the true vine and to consider the benefits of our union in Christ to reflect upon the evidence of our union in Christ and to understand the nature of our union with Christ. A.W. Pink wrote in his book, Spiritual Union and Communion, that he has not the least doubt in his mind that the subject of spiritual union is the most important, the most profound, and the most blessed of any that is set forth in Scripture. Yet sad to say, there is hardly any that now there is hardly any that is now more generally neglected. The very expression spiritual union is unknown in most professing Christian circles. And even where it is employed, it is given such a protracted meaning as to take in only a fragment of this precious truth. Probably its very profundity 
is the reason why it is so largely ignored in this superficial age. Let us, therefore, not let this profundity of our spiritual union keep us from drinking in deeply from the Scriptures on this truth. Let's not be afraid of the mystery of our connection to Christ. As Anthony Hookema wrote, once you have had your eyes open to this concept of union with Christ, you will find it almost everywhere in the New Testament. So therefore, look for it as you read the Word. Meditate upon this truth. Let the knowledge of the reality of our spiritual union and communion in Christ grow us in dependence upon Him and make us more willing to yield to the pruning of the Father. And as we enjoy the benefits of this union, may we do so with the full joy He has given to us. I'll close with yet another quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones as he speaks to the union we enjoy in Christ. We can therefore claim that what has happened to Christ has happened to us. He is the marvel and mystery of our salvation, and it is the most glorious thing we can ever contemplate. The Son of God, the second person in the eternal Godhead, came down from heaven to earth. He took unto Himself human nature. He joined human nature unto Himself. He shared human nature, and as the result of His work, we human beings share His life and are in Him, and are participators in all the benefits that come from Him. Now, I reminded you at the beginning, and I must repeat it, that, and nothing less than that, is Christianity. Our merciful and glorious Father in heaven, we are thankful for Christ our Savior, for in Him alone we find hope and joy in this life. We thank You for Your Word, which is ever true. For apart from Your Word, we would not know You, nor know, know salvation. And we are so very thankful for the confidence that we have in our Savior, Jesus. And for the love of the Heavenly Father, the great Husbandman and perfect fine dresser. And we thank You for the Spirit who is at work in us sanctifying us that we might bring forth good fruit in your kingdom. In this we pray with a sure hope, knowing that you will finish the good work which you have begun in us, even into the day of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.